Boys Will Be Boys, Part 1, by Irvin S. Cobb. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Mike Harris. When Judge Priest, in this particular morning, came puffing into his chambers at the courthouse, looking with his broad beam and his costume of flappy, loose white ducks, a good deal like an old-fashioned full rigger with all sails set, his black shadow, Jeff Poindexter, had already finished the job of putting the quarters to rights for the day. The cedar water bucket had been properly replenished, the jagged flange of a fifteen-cent chunk of ice protruded above the rim of the bucket, and alongside on the appointed nail hung the gourd dipper that the master always used. The floor had been swept, except, of course, in the corners and underneath things. There were evidences in its streaky scrolls of fine grit particles upon various flat surfaces that a dusting brush had been more or less sparingly employed. A spray of trumpet flowers plucked from the vine that grew outside the window had been draped over the framed steel engraving of President Davis and his cabinet upon the wall, and on the top of the big square desk in the middle of the room, where a small section of cleared green blotter space formed an oasis in a dry and arid desert of cluttered law journals and dusty documents, the morning's mail rested in a little heap. Having placed his old cotton umbrella in a corner, having removed his coat and hung it upon a peg behind the hall door, and having seen to it that a palm-leaf fan was in arm's reach, should he require it, the judge in his billowy white shirt sat down at his desk and gave his attention to his letters. There was an invitation from the Highland B. Gracie camp of Confederate veterans of Edinburgh, asking him to deliver the chief oration at the annual reunion, to be held at Mineral Springs on the twelfth day of the following month, an official notice from the clerk of the Court of Appeals concerning the affirmation of a judgment that had been handed down by Judge Priest at the preceding term of his own court, a bill for five pounds of a special brand of smoking tobacco, a notice of a large meeting, altogether quite a sizable batch of mail. At the bottom of the pile he came upon a long envelope addressed to him by his title instead of by his name, bearing on its upper right-hand corner several foreign-looking stamps. They were British stamps, he saw, on closer examination. To the best of his recollection, it had been quite a long time since Judge Priest had had a communication by post from overseas. He adjusted his steel-bowed spectacles, ripped the wrapper with care, and shook out the contents. There appeared to be several enclosures. In fact, there were several. A sheaf of printed forms, a document with seals attached, and a letter that covered two sheets of paper with typewritten lines. To the letter the recipient gave consideration first. Before he reached the end of the opening paragraph he uttered a profound grunt of surprise. His reading of the rest was frequently punctuated by small exclamations, his face meantime puckering up in interested lines. At the conclusion, when he came to the signature, he indulged himself in a soft low whistle. He read the letter all through again, and after he examined the forms and the documents which had accompanied it. Chuckling under his breath, he wriggled himself free from the snug embrace of his chair-arms, and waddled out of his own office and down the long bare empty hall to the office of Sheriff Giles Birdsong. Within, the competent functionary, Deputy Sheriff Breck Quarles, sat at ease in his shirt-sleeves, engaged with the smaller blade of his pocket-knife, in performing upon his fingernails an operation that combined the fine deftness of the manicure with the less delicate art of the farrier. 
At the sight of the judge in the open doorway he hastily withdrew from a table-top where they rested a pair of long, thin legs, and rose. "'Morning, Breck,' said Judge Priest to the other's salutation. "'No, thank you, son. I won't come in, but I've got a little job for you. I wished, if you ain't too busy, that you'd step down the street and see if you can find a peep o day for me, and fetch him back here with you. Won't take you long, will it?' "'No, sir. Not very.' Mr. Quarles reached for his hat and snuggled his shoulder holster back inside his unbuttoned waistcoat. "'He'll most likely be down around Gafford's stable. What's old Peep been doing, Judge, getting himself in contempt of court or something?' He grinned, asking the question with the air of one making a little joke. "'No,' vouchsafed the Judge. "'He ain't done nothing, but he's about to have something of a highly unusual nature done to him. You just tell him I'm wishful to see him right away.' that'll be sufficient, I reckon. Without making further explanation, Judge Priest returned to his chambers, and for the third time read the letter from foreign parts. Court was not in session, and the hour was early, and the weather was hot. Nobody interrupted him. Perhaps fifteen minutes passed, Mr. Quarles poked his head in the door. "'I found him, sir,' the deputy stated. "'He's outside here in the hall.' "'Much obliged to your son,' said Judge Priest. "'Send him on in now, will you, please?' The head was withdrawn. Its owner lingered out of sight of his honour, but within earshot. It was hard to figure the presiding judge of the first judicial district of the state of Kentucky as having business with Peepo Day, and though Mr. Quarles was no eavesdropper, still he felt a pardonable curiosity in whatsoever might transpire. As he feigned an absorbed interest in a tax notice, which was pasted on a blackboard just outside the office door, there entered the presence of the judge a man who seemingly was but a few years younger than the judge himself, a man who looked to be somewhere between sixty-five and seventy. There is a look that you may have seen in the eyes of ownerless but well-intentioned dogs, dogs that, expecting kicks as their daily portion, are humbly grateful for kind words and stray bones, dogs that are fairly yearning to be adopted by somebody, by anybody being prepared to give to such a benefactor a most faithful dog-like devotion in return. Well, this look, which is fairly common among masterless and homeless dogs, is rare among humans. Still, once in a while you do find it there, too. The man who now timidly shuffled himself across the threshold of Judge Priest's office had just such a look out of his eyes. He had a long, simple face, partly enclosed in gray whiskers, Four dollars would have been a sufficient price to pay for the garments he stood in, including the wrecked hat he held in his hands and the broken, misshapen shoes on his feet. A purchaser who gave more than four dollars for the whole in its present state of decrepitude would have been but a poor hand at bargaining. The man who wore this outfit coughed in an embarrassed fashion and halted, fumbling his ruinous hat in his hands. "'How they do?' said Judge Priest hardly. "'Come right in!' The other diffidently advanced himself a yard or two. "'Excuse me, sir,' he said apologetically. "'But this here Breck Quarles, he come after me, and he said as uh, how you wanted to see me. "'Twas him as brung me here, sir.' Faintly underlying the drawl of the speaker was just a suspicion, a mere trace, as you might say, of a labial softness that belongs solely and exclusively to the children in a diminishing degree to the grandchildren of native-born sons and daughters of a certain small green isle in the sea. It was not so much a suggestion of a brogue as it was the suggestion of the ghost of a brogue, 
a brogue almost extinguished, almost obliterated, yet persisting through the generations, south of Ireland, struggling beneath south of Mason Dixon's line. "'Yes,' said the judge, "'that's right. I, I do want to see you.' The tone was one that he might employ in addressing a bashful child. "'Now, you sit down there, and you just make yourself at home.' The newcomer obeyed, to the extent of perching himself on the extreme forward edge of a chair. His feet shuffled uneasily where they were drawn up against the cross-rung of the chair. The judge reared well back, studying his visitor over the tops of his glasses with rather a quizzical look. In one hand he balanced the large envelope which had come to him that morning. "'Seems to me I heard somewhere, years back, that your regular Christian name was Paul. Is that right? Yeah?' "'Surely is, sir,' assented the ragged man, surprised and plainly grateful that one holding a supremely high position in the community should vouchsafe to remember a fact relating to so inconsequential an atom as himself. "'But I ain't heard it for so long. I, I come might nigh forgetting it sometimes myself. You see, Judge Priest, when, when I wasn't nothing but just a shaver, folks started in to call me Peep, on account of my last name being O'Day, I reckon. They've been calling me so ever since. First off, twas Little Peep, and then just plain Peep. And now it's got to be Old Peep. Yeah, but my real entitled name is Paul, just like you said, Judge. Paul Felix O'Day. Uh-huh, and wasn't your father's name Philip, and your mother's name Catherine Dwyer O'Day? To the best of my recollection, that's partly so, too, sir. They both of them up and died when I was a baby long before I could remember anything at all. But they always told me my pa's name was Phil, or Philip. Only my ma's name wasn't Cath... Cath, it wasn't what you just now called it, Judge. It was, it was plain Kate. Kate? Catherine? It, it makes no great difference, exclaimed Judge Priest. I reckon the rather record is straight so far. And now think hard, and see if you can ever remember hearing of an uncle named Daniel O'Day, your, your father's brother. The answer was a shake of the tousled head. I don't know nothing about my people. I only... Just know that they come over from some place with a funny name in the old country before I was born. The only as kin I ever had over here was that there no-count trifling nephew of mine, Purse Dwyer, him that used to hang out around this town. I reckon you call him to mind, Judge. The old judge nodded before continuing. All the same, I reckon there ain't no matter of doubt but what you had an uncle of the name of Daniel. All the evidence would seem to pipe that way. According to the proofs, this here Uncle Daniel of yours lived in a little town called Kilmare in Ireland. He glanced at one of the papers that lay on his desk, then added in a casual tone, Tell me, Peep, what are you doing now for a living? The object of this examination grinned a faint grin of extenuation. Well, sir, I'm knocking about, doing the best I can, which ain't much. I help out round Gafford's liver stable, and Pete Gafford he lets me sleep in a little room behind the feed room and his wife, she gives me my vittles. Once in a while I get a chance to do odd jobs for folks around town, cutting weeds and splitting stove wood and packing in coal, you know, such as that. Not much money in that, is there? Well, no, sir, not much. Folks is more prone to offer me old clothes than they ought to pay me in cash. Still, I manage to get along. I don't live very fancy, but then I don't starve, and that's more than some can say. Peep, what was the most money you ever had in your life at one time? 
Peep scratched with a freckled hand at his thatch of faded whitish hair to stimulate recollection. I reckon not more'n six bits at any one time, sir. Seems like I've sort of got the knack of living without money. Well, Pete, such being the case, what would you say if I was to tell you that you're a rich man? The answer came slowly. I reckon, sir, if it didn't sound disrespectful, I'd say you was pranking with me, making fun of me, sir. Judge Priest bent forward in his chair. I'm not pranking with you, son. It's my pleasant duty to inform you that at this moment you are the rightful owner of eight thousand pounds. Pounds of what, Judge? The tone expressed a heavy incredulity. Why, pounds in money. Outside in the hall, with one ear held conveniently near the crack of the door, Deputy Sheriff Quarles gave a violent start and then at once was torn between a desire to stay and hear more and an urge to hurry forth and spread the unbelievable tidings. After the briefest of struggles the latter inclination won. This news was too marvelously good to keep. Surely a harbinger and a herald were needed to spread it broadcast. Mr. Quarles tiptoed rapidly down the hall. When he reached the sidewalk the volunteer bearer of a miraculous tale fairly ran. As for the man who sat facing the judge, he merely stared in a dull bewilderment. "'Judge,' he said at length, eight thousand pounds of money ought to make a powerful big pile, ought it?' "'It wouldn't weigh quite that much if you put it on the scales,' explained his honor painstakingly. "'I mean pounds sterling in English money. Near as I can figure offhand, it comes in our money to somewheres between thirty-five and forty thousand dollars, nearer forty than thirty-five. And it's yours, Pete.' every red cent of it. Excuse me, sir, and not meaning to contradict you or nothing like that, but I reckon there must be some mistake. Why, Judge, I don't scusely know anybody that's as wealthy as all that, let alone anybody that'd give me such a lot of money. Listen here, Peep. This here letter I'm holding in my hand came to me by today's mail, just a little spell ago. It's from Ireland, from that town of Kilmare where your people come from. It was sent to me by a firm of barristers in that town, that lawyers, uh, we call them. In this letter, they asked me to find you and to tell you what's happened. It seems, from what they write, that your uncle, by name Daniel O'Day, died not very long ago without issue, that is to say, without leaving any children of his own, and without making any will. It appears that he had some eight thousand pounds saved up. Ever since he died, those lawyers and some other folks over there in Ireland have been trying to find out who that money should go to. They learnt in some way that your father and your mother settled in this town a mighty long time ago, and that they died here and left one son, which is you. All the rest of the family over there in Ireland have already died out, it seems. That naturally makes you the next of kin and the heir at law, which means that all your uncle's money comes direct to you. So, Peep, you're a wealthy man in your own name. That's the news I had to tell you. Allow me to congratulate you on your good fortune. The beneficiary rose to his feet, seeming not to see the hand the old judge had extended across the desktop toward him. On his face, of a sudden, was a queer, eager look. It was as though he foresaw the coming true of long-cherished and heretofore unattainable visions. Have you got it here, sir? He glanced about him as though expecting to see a bulky bundle. Judge Priest smiled. Oh, no, they didn't send it along with the letter. That wouldn't be regular. 
There's quite a lot of things to be done first. There'll be some proofs to be got up and sworn to before a man called a British consul, and likely there'll be a lot of papers that you'll have to sign, and then all the papers and the proofs and things will be sent across the ocean, and after some fees are paid out over there, oh, why, then you'll get your inheritance. The rapt look faded from the strained face, leaving it downcast. I, I'm afeard, then, I, I won't be able to claim that there money, he said forlornly. Why not? Because I don't know how to sign my own name. Raised the way I was, and never got no book learner. I can't neither read nor write. Compassion shadowed the judge's chubby face, and compassion was in his voice as he made answer. You don't need to worry about that part of it. You can make your mark, just a, a cross mark on the paper, with witnesses present, uh, sort of like this. He took up a pen, and dipped it in the inkwell, and illustrated his meaning. "'Yes, sir, I I'm glad it can be done that way. I always wished I knew how to write brig print and spell my own name out. I asked a feller once to write my name out for me in plain letters on a piece of paper. I was aiming to learn to copy it off, but I showed it to one of the hands at the liver stable, and he busted out laughing, and, and, and then he come to find out that this here feller had tricked me for to make a game of me. He hadn't wrote my name out at all. He'd written some dirty words instead.' So after that I, I give up trying to educate myself. Now, that was several years back, and I ain't, ain't tried since. Now I reckon I'm too old to learn. I, 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 wonder, I wonder if it'll be very long before that there money gets here, and I begin to have the spending of it. Making plans already? Oh, yes, sir, O'Day answered truthfully. I am. He was silent for a moment, his eyes on the floor, then timidly he advanced the thought that had come to him. I reckon, sir, it, it wouldn't be no more than fair and proper if I divided my money with you to pay you back for all this trouble you're fixing to take on my account. Would, would half of it be enough? The, the other half ought to last me for what uses I'll make of it. I, I know you mean well, and I'm much obliged to you for your offer, stated Judge Priest, smiling a little. But it wouldn't be fitting or proper for me to touch a cent of your money. There'll be some court dues and some lawyers' fees and such to pay over there in Ireland, but after that's settled up, everything comes direct to you. It's going to be a pleasure to me to help you arrange these here details that you don't understand. A pleasure, and, and not a burden. He considered the figures before him. Now, here's another thing, Peep. I judge it's hardly fitting for a man of substance to go on living the way you've had to live during your life. If you don't mind my offering you a little advice, I would suggest that you go right down to Feldsburg Brothers when you leave here, and get yourself fitted out with some suitable clothing. And you'd better go to Max Biederman's, too, and order a better pair of shoes for yourself than them you got on. Tell them I sent you, and that I guarantee the payment of your bills, though I reckon they'll hardly be necessary. When the news of your good luck gets noised around, I, I misdoubt whether there's any firm in our entire city. It wouldn't be glad to have you on their books for a steady customer. And also, if, if I was you, I'd arrange to get me regular board and lodging somewheres around town. You see, Peep, coming into a property entails considerable many responsibilities right from the start. Yes, sir, assented the legatee obediently. I'll do just as you say, Judge Priest, about the clothes and the shoes and all that, but, but if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to go on living at Gafford's. 
Pete Gafford's been mighty good to me, him and his wife both, and I wouldn't like for him to think I was getting stuck up, just because I've had this here streak of luck come to me. Maybe, seeing as how things has changed with me, they, they'd be willing to take me in for a table boarder at their house. But I surely would hate to give up living in that there little room behind the feed room of the livery stable. I don't know as I could ever find any place that would seem as homelike to me as what it is. Well, suit yourself about that, said Judge Priest hardly. I don't know but what you've got the proper notion about it after all. Yes, sir. Them Gaffords have been pretty nigh the only real true friends I ever had that I could count on. He hesitated a moment. I reckon, I, I reckon, sir, it'll be a right smart while, won't it, before that money gets here from all the way across the ocean? Why, well, yes, I imagine it will. Was you figuring on investing a little of it now? Yes, yes, sir, I, I was. About how much did you think of spending for a beginning? O'Day squinted his eyes, his lips moving in silent calculation. Well, sir, he said it like I, I could use as much as a silver dollar, but, but of course, since— That sounds kind of moderate to me, broke in Judge Priest. He shoved a pudgy hand into a pocket of his white trousers. I reckon this detail can be arranged. Here, Pete, he extended his hand. Here's your dollar. Then, as the other drew back, stammering a refusal, he hastily added, No, 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 go, go ahead and take it. It's yours. I'm just advancing it to you out of what'll be coming to you shortly. I'll tell you what, until such time as you're in a position to draw on your own funds, you just drop in here to see me when you're in need of cash, and I'll try to let you have what you require, in reason. I'll keep a proper reckoning of what you get, and you can pay me back just as soon as your inheritance is put into your hands. Oh, one thing more, he added, as the heir, having thanked him, was making his grateful adieu at the threshold. Now that you're wealthy or about to be so, I kind of imagine... Quite a parcel of fellows will be suddenly discover themselves strangely and affectionately drawn towards you. You're liable to find out you've always had more true and devoted friends in this community than what you ever imagined to be the case before. Now, friendship is a mighty fine thing, taking it by and large, but it can be overdone. It's barely possible that some of this here new crop of your well-wishers and admirers will be making little business propositions to you. "'desiring to have you go partners with them in business, "'or to sell you desirable pieces of real estate, "'or even to let you loan them various sums of money. "'I wouldn't be surprised what a number of such chances "'will be coming your way during the next few days. "'And from then on, if such should be the case, "'I would suggest to you that before committing yourself "'to anybody or anything, "'you tell them that I'm sort of acting "'as your unofficial adviser in money matters.' and that they should come to me and outline their little schemes in person. Do you get my general drift? Yes, sir, said Pete. I won't forget. And thank you again, Judge, especially for letting me have this dollar ahead of time. He shambled out with the coin in his hand, and on his face was again the look of one who sees before him the immediate fulfillment of a delectable dream. With lines of sympathy and amusement cross-hatched at the outer corners of his eyelids, Judge Priest, rising and stepping to his door, watched the retreating figure of the town's newest and strangest capitalist disappear down the wide front steps of the courthouse. Presently he went back to his chair and sat down, tugging at his short chin-beard. "'I wonder now,' said he, meditatively addressing the emptiness of the room, 
I wonder what a man sixty-odd year old's going to do with the first whole dollar he ever had in his life. It was characteristic of our circuit judge that he should have voiced his curiosity aloud. Talking to himself when he was alone was one of his habits. Also, it was characteristic of him that he had refrained from betraying his inquisitiveness to his late caller. Similar motives of delicacy had kept him from following the other man to watch the sequence. However, at second hand, the details very shortly reached him. They were brought by no less a person than Deputy Sheriff Quarles, who, some twenty minutes or possibly half an hour later, obtruded himself upon Judge Priest's presence. Judge, began Mr. Quarles, you never in the world guess what old Peep O'Day done with the first piece of money he got his hands on out of that there forty thousand pounds of silver dollars he's coming in from his uncle's estate. The old man slanted a keen glance in Mr. Quarles' direction. "'Tell me, son,' he asked softly, "'how did you come to hear the glad tidings so promptly?' Oh, "'Me?' said Mr. Quarles innocently. Why, "'Why, Judge Priest, the word's all over this part of town by this time. "'Why, I reckon twenty-five, fifty people must have been watching old Peep "'to see how he's going to act when he come out of this courthouse.' "'Well, well, 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 well,' murmured the judge blandly. "'Good news travels almost as fast sometimes as what bad news does. "'Now, don't it, now?' "'Well, son, I give up the riddle. Tell me just what your elderly friend did do with the first installment of his inheritance.' "'Well, sir, he turned south here at the gate and went right down the street, a-looking neither to the right nor the left. He looked to me like a man in a trance, almost. He kept tight on through Legal Road till he comes to Franklin Street, and then he goes up Franklin to B. Weil and Son's confectionery store, and there he turns in.' Well, I happened to be following along behind him with a, with a few others, with, with several others, in fact, and we all sort of slowed up in passing and looked in at the door. And that's how I come to be in a position to see what happened. Now, old P.P. marches in just like I'm telling you, just like I'm telling it to you, sir. And Mr. B. Wilde comes to wait on him, and he starts in buying. He buys himself a five-cent bag of gumdrops and a five-cent bag of jelly beans and a ten-cent bag of mixed candies, kisses and candy mottos and such as them, you know, and a sack of fresh roasted peanuts, a, a big sack, it was a fifteen-cent size, and two prize boxes, and, and some ginger snaps, ten cents worth, and a coconut, and half a dozen red bananas, and half a dozen more of the plain yellow ones. Altogether, I figure he spent an even dollar. In fact, I seen him hand Mr. Wilde a dollar, and I didn't see him getting no change back out of it. Then he comes on out of the store, with all these things stuck in his pockets, and stacked up in his arms, till he looks sort of like some new kind of summertime Santa Claus, and he sets down on a goods box at the edge of the pavement, with his feet in the gutter, and starts in eating all them things. First he takes a bite off a yellow banana, and then off a red banana, and then a mouthful of peanuts, and then, then maybe some mixed candies, not saying a word to nobody, but just naturally eating his fool head off. A young chap that's clerking in Bagby's grocery next door steps up to him and speaks to him, meaning, I suppose, to ask him, is it true he's wealthy? And old Peep, he says to him, please don't come bothering me now, sonny. I'm busy catching up, he says, and keeps right on munching and a-chewing like all possessed. And, and that ain't all of it, neither, Judge. Not by a long shot, it ain't. Pretty soon old Peepy looks round him at the little crowd that's gathered. He didn't seem to pay no heed to the grown-up people standing there, but sees a couple of boys about ten year old in the crowd, and 
he beckons to them to come to him, and he makes room for em alongside him on the box, and divides up his knick-knacks with em. When I left there, come bound back here, he had no less than six kids squatting around him, including one little nigger boy, and between em all they'd just finished up the last of the bananas and peanuts, and the candy, and the ginger snaps, and was fixing to take turns drinking the milk out of the coconut. I suppose they got it all cracked out of the shell and et up by now. By the coconut, I mean, Judge, you, you ought to step down into Franklin Street and take a look at the picture whilst there was still time. You never seen such a funny sight in all your days, I'll bet. I reckon it would be too late to be starting now, said Judge Priest. I'm right sorry I missed it. Busy catching up, huh? Yes, I reckon he is. Tell me, son, what did you make out of the way people day acted? Why, sir, stated Mr. Qualls, to me, mind, judge, there ain't no manner of doubt but what prosperity has went to his head and turned it. He acted to me like a plumb distracted idiot. A grown man with forty thousand pounds of solid money settin' on the side of a gutter eatin' Jim Cracks with a passel of dirty little boys. Can you figure it out any other way, judge, except that his mind is gone? Well, I don't set myself up to be a specialist in mental disorders, son, said Judge Priestley softly. But since you asked me the question, I should say, speaking offhand, that it looks to me more as if the heart was the organ that was mainly affected. And possibly, he added this last with a dry little smile, and possibly, by now, the stomach also. Whether or not Mr. Quarles was correct in his psychopathic diagnosis, he certainly had been right when he told Judge Priest that the word was already over the business district. It had spread fast and was still spreading. It spread to beat the wireless, traveling as it did by that mouth-to-ear method of communication, which is so amazingly swift and generally so tremendously incorrect. Persons who could not credit the tale at all nevertheless lost no time in giving it a yet wider circulation so that, as though borne on the wind, it moved in every direction, like ripples on a pond, and with each time of retelling the size of the legacy grew. The daily evening news appearing on the streets at 5 p.m. confirmed the tale, though by its account the tune was reduced to a sum far below the gorgeously aggregated estimates of most of the earlier narrators. Between breakfast and supper-time, Peepo Day's position in the common estimation of his fellow-citizens underwent a radical and revolutionary change. He ceased, automatically, as it were, to be a town character. He became, by universal consent, a town notable. whose every act and every word would thereafter be subjected to close scrutiny and closer analysis. The next day the nation at large had opportunity to know of the great good fortune that had befallen Paul Felix O'Day, for the story had been wired to the city papers by the local correspondents of the same, and the press associations had picked up a stickful of the story and sped it broadcast over leased wires. Many who until that day had never heard of the fortunate man, or, indeed, of the place where he lived, at once manifested a concern in his well-being. Certain firms of investment brokers in New York and Chicago promptly added a new name to what vulgarly they called their sucker lists dealers in mining stocks, in oil stocks, and all kinds of attractive stocks showed interest. In circular form samples of the most optimistic and alluring literature the world has ever known were consigned to the post, addressed to Mr. P. F. O'Day, such-and-such such a town, such-and-such such a state, care of general delivery. Various lonesome ladies in various lonesome places lost no time in sitting themselves down and inditing congratulatory letters 
object, matrimony. Some of these were single ladies, others had been widowed either by death or request. Various other persons of both sexes residing here, there, and elsewhere in our country suddenly remembered that they too were descended from the O'Days of Ireland, and wrote on forthwith to claim proud and fond relationship with the particular O'Day who had come into money. It was a remarkable circumstance which speedily developed that one man should have so many distant cousins scattered over the Union and a thing equally noteworthy that practically all these kinspeople, through no fault of their own, should at the present moment be in such straitened circumstances and in such dire need of temporary assistance of a financial nature. Ticker and Printer's Inc., operating in conjunction, certainly did their work mighty well. Even so, several days were to elapse before the news reached one who, of all those who read it, had most cause to feel a profound personal sensation in the intelligence. This delay, however, was no wise to be blamed upon the tardiness of the newspapers. It was occasioned by the fact that the person referred to was for the moment well out of contact with the active currents of world affairs, he being confined to a workhouse in Evansville, Indiana. As soon as he had rallied from the shock, this individual set about making plans to put himself in direct touch with the inheritor. He had ample time in which to frame and shape his campaign inasmuch as there remained for him yet to serve nearly eight long and painfully tedious weeks of a three-months vagrancy sentence. Unlike most of those now manifesting their interest, he did not write a letter, but he dreamed dreams that made him forget the annoyances of a ball and chain fast on his ankle, and piles of stubborn stones to be cracked up into fine bits with a heavy hammer. Oh, but we're getting ahead of our narrative, though. Days ahead of it. The chronological sequence of events properly dates from the morning following the morning when Peepo Day, having been abruptly translated from the masses of the penniless to the classes of the wealthy, had forthwith embarked upon the gastronomic orgy so graphically detailed by Deputy Sheriff Quarles. On that next day, more eyes probably than had been trained in Peepo Day's direction in all the unremarked and unremarkable days of his life put together, were focused upon him. Persons who theretofore had regarded his existence, if indeed they gave it a thought, as one of the utterly trivial and inconsequential incidents of the cosmic scene, were moved to speak to him, to clasp his hand, and in numerous instances to express a hearty satisfaction over his altered circumstances. To all these, whether they were moved by mere neighborly goodwill, or perchance were inspired by impulses of selfishness, the old man exhibited a mien of aloofness and embarrassment. This diffidence, or this suspicion, or this whatever it was, protected him from those who might entertain covetous and ulterior designs upon his inheritance, even better than, though had he been brusque and rude, while those who sought to question him regarding his plans for the future drew from him only mumbled and evasive replies, which left them as deeply in the dark as they had been before. Altogether, in his intercourse with adults, he appeared shy and very ill at ease. It was noted, though, that early in the forenoon he attached to him perhaps half a dozen urchins, of whom the oldest could scarcely have been more than twelve or thirteen years of age, and that these youngsters remained his companions throughout the day. Likewise, the events of that day were such as to confirm a majority of the observers in practically the same belief that had been voiced of Mr. Quarles namely that whatever scanty brains Peepo Day may have ever had were now completely addled by the stroke of luck that had befallen him. In fairness to all, 
to O'Day and to the town critics who sat in judgment upon his behaviour. It should be stated that his conduct at the very outset was not entirely devoid of evidence of sanity. With his troop of ragged juveniles trailing behind him, he first visited Felsberg Brothers' Emporium, to exchange his old and disreputable costume for a wardrobe that, in accordance with Judge Priest's recommendation, he had ordered on the afternoon previous, and which had since been undergoing certain necessary alterations. With his meagre frame encased in new black woollens, and wearing, as an incongruous added touch, the most brilliant of neckties, a necktie of the shade of a pomegranate blossom, he presently issued from Felsberg Brothers, and entered Mr. Biederman's shoe-store, two doors below. Here Mr. Biederman fitted him with shoes, and in addition noted down a further order, which the purchaser did not give until after he had conferred earnestly with the members of his youthful entourage. These watching this scene from a distance saw, and perhaps marvelled at the sight, that already, between these small boys on the one part, and this old man on the other, a perfect understanding appeared to have been established. After leaving Biederman's and tagged by his small escorts, O'Day went straight to the courthouse, and upon knocking at the door was admitted to Judge Priest's private chambers, the boys, meantime, waiting outside in the hall. When he came forth, he showed them something he held in his hand and told them something, whereupon all of them burst into excited and joyous whoops. It was at that point that O'Day, by the common verdict of most grown-up onlookers, began to betray the vagaries of a disordered intellect. Not that his reason had not been under suspicion already as a result of his freakish excess in the matter of B. Weil and Sons' wares on the preceding day, but the relapse that now followed, as nearly everyone agreed, was even more pronounced, even more symptomatic than the earlier attack of aberration. In brief, this is what had happened. To begin with Mr. Virgil Overall, who dealt in lands and houses and sold insurance of all the commoner varieties on the side, had stalked O'Day to this point and was lying in wait for him as he came out of the courthouse into the public square, being anxious to describe to him some especially desirable bargains in both improved and unimproved realty. Also, Mr. Overall was prepared to book him for life, accident, and health policies on the spot. So pleased was Mr. Overall at having distanced his professional rivals in the hunt that he dribbled at the mouth. But the warmth of his disappointment and indignation dried up the salivary fonts instantly when the prospective patron declined to listen to him at all, and, breaking free from Mr. Overall's detaining clasp, hurried on into legal row with his small convoys trotting along ahead and alongside him. At the door of the Blue Goose Saloon and Short Order Restaurant, its proprietor, by name Link Iserman, was lurking, as it were, in ambush. He hailed the approaching O'Day most cordially, he inquired in a warm voice regarding O'Day's health, and then, with a rare burst of generosity, he invited, nay, urged O'Day to step inside and have something on the house. Wines, ales, liquors, or cigars, it was all one to Mr. Iserman. The other merely shook his head, and, without a word of thanks for the offer, passed on as though bent upon an important mission. Mark how the proofs were accumulating. The man had disdained the company of men of approximately his own age or thereabout. He had refused an opportunity to partake of refreshment suitable to his years. And now he stepped into the Bonton toy store and bought for cash, most inconceivable of acquisitions, a little wagon that was painted bright red and bore on its sides in curlicued letters the name 
comet. His next stop was at Bishop and Bryan's grocery, where, with the aid of his youthful compatriots, he first discriminatingly selected, and then purchased on credit, and finally loaded into the wagon such purchases as a dozen bottles of soda-pop assorted flavors, cheese, crackers, soda and animal, sponge-cakes with weatherproof pink icing on them, fruits of the season, cove oysters, a bottle of pepper sauce, and a quantity of the extra-large-sized bright green cucumber pickles known to the trade as the fancy jumbo brand Prime Selected. Presently the astonishing spectacle was presented of two small boys, with string bridles on their arms, drawing the wagon through the town and out of it into the country, with Peepo Day in the role of teamster walking alongside the laden wagon. He was holding the lines in his hands and shouting orders at his team, who showed a colty inclination to shy at objects, to kick up their heels without provocation, and at intervals to try to run away. Eight or ten small boys, for by now the troop had grown in number and in volume of noise, trailed along, keeping step with their elderly patron, and advising him shrilly regarding the management of his refractory span. As it turned out, the destination of this preposterous procession was Bradshaw's Grove, where the entire party spent the day picnicking in the woods, and, as reported by several reliable witnesses, playing games. It was not so strange that holidaying boys should play games. The amazing feature of the performance was that Peep O'Day, a man old enough to be grandfather to any of them, played with them, being by turns an Indian chief, a robber baron, and the driver of a stagecoach attacked by wild western desperadoes. When he returned to town at dusk, drawing his little red wagon behind him, his new suit was rumpled into many wrinkles and marked by dust and grass stains. His flame-colored tie was twisted under one ear, his new straw hat was mashed quite out of shape, and in his eyes was a light that sundry citizens on meeting him could only interpret for sparks struck from inner fires of madness. End of Boys Will Be Boys, Part 1 by Irvin S. Cobb Read by Mike Harris